Hello, you're listening to the Solid Word Bible Church podcast. Whether you're at work, driving in your car, or getting your workout on, we hope and pray that what you hear today will fill your spirit. Come, join us as we walk through God's Word together. Hey, my name's Joey, Pastor Joey. I want to bring greetings from Faith Church up there at 91st and College. As Pastor Curtis said, you've gotten to hear from Pastor Jeff, Pastor Tom Macy, Pastor Bob Blonick, uh, and I'm excited to get to be here with you this morning as well. Thanks to Pastor Curtis for the invitation. Curtis has become, to me, a brother in ministry and in life as I get to watch him lead and learn from him, and so uh, it's just a privilege to be able to bring the word uh, to the people that God has given him to shepherd. So thank you, Curtis. I uh, also want to bring apologies from my wife. She could not join me this morning. She was uh, on the schedule already for our worship team at Faith, so she did her best to make sure that I was decently dressed before I left the house this morning and said, sorry, honey, that's all I got for you. <laughs> and she also told me she gets to hear me preach often enough. So, well, let's, uh, I'm going to start us out here by reading from the scriptures. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 this morning, verses 2 through 12. You're familiar with these verses if you've read any of Matthew. This is the Beatitudes. I'd like to read them through for us. So if you would please stand for the reading of God's word. This is Matthew chapter 5, verses 2 through 12. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. And Jesus opened his mouth and taught them, saying... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons and daughters of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. And thanks be to God. You may be seated. You may not be able to tell by looking at me because of a relatively short period of indolence over the new year, but uh, one of my favorite pastimes is running. Just getting out and getting on my feet for a half an hour, an hour at a time. You know, it's good physical activity, and I enjoy the meditative aspects of it. Just, you know, going and letting your mind wander. But it's not all recreation. I also like getting faster. So I've set some goals for myself over the last couple of years. I'm kind of in that weird state where non-runners think I'm crazy because of how much I run, and real runners think I'm lazy because I don't run enough. I'm like stuck right there where it's like, well, I got a little bit of time, but I, I want to get, get a little bit faster, a little bit sleeker, a little bit slimmer, a little bit stronger. And the best way to get better out of physical activity is by reading books about it. <laughs> At least that's what I learned in seminary. Do your research. <laughs> so I, I found a book called Run Like a Pro, Even If You're Slow. 
And I love this book. It wasn't like any of the other running books that I've read, and I've read a lot of them and haven't gotten all that much faster. But this book in particular, instead of saying, like, here's exactly what you need to do, and here's the right steps, and, you know, go out and run this kind of run or that kind of run, it just told stories about professional runners and said, hey, here's basically what real runners do. This is what they look like. This is the kind of lifestyle that a real runner, a crazy runner, runs. You know, the best runners, they balance their training loads. Don't run too much, too hard, too fast. The best runners manage their mileage. The best runners train hard and rest hard. The best runners eat real food. The best runners strengthen their mental endurance. I love this book because it wasn't just a list of training rules, do's and don'ts. Here's what you need to do. Here's what you need to avoid. It was a picture of what a good running life looks like, the kind of life that makes a good runner, the kind of life within which a runner can flourish in their goals, which personally I find way more compelling than a list of do's and don'ts. I don't know if you're with me on this, but I've tried. I've got one daughter. She's 12 years old, and I've tried telling her, don't do this, do that, and she responds a whole lot better to me and my wife sort of living what we want her to look like than just telling her what to avoid. You know what I'm talking about. Don't tell me what to do. Show me a beautiful picture of somebody else doing what I want in life, and then I'm going to ask them, how'd you get there? That's the way Jesus works, too, in this great sermon we call the Sermon on the Mount. You know, the way Matthew puts together his whole story of Jesus' life and ministry. He gives us a couple of chapters of introduction to who this guy Jesus is, the preaching of the kingdom, and then he shows Jesus preaching the kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, 7, works the same way. Now, if we were going to take the time to walk all the way through the Sermon on the Mount together, it would only take us about six months, (laughs) give or take. Now, I know because that's what we did last year at Faith, is we walked through the whole Sermon on the Mount. It, It took us a good long time, but man, it was a rich study. Today, I want to share with you just a little bit of what we were studying last year because this has changed fundamentally the way I read the Sermon on the Mount and understand the kind of life that God is calling us to. So we're going to look at the beginning of the sermon, the introduction to the sermon, the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are not, like that running book, they are not a list of rules, a list of do's and don'ts for the Christian life. They're not a list of requirements for how to get into heaven or a plan, a little sort of life hack for how to get God to bless you. Mm, Maybe if I was just a little bit more meek, God would bless me. That's not the way the Beatitudes work. Instead, they are a beautiful picture of what a truly flourishing human life looks like. Except it may not, at first glance, seem like all that attractive of a picture. Mourning and suffering and persecution. And yet... It's the picture of a life we see lived out in Jesus. So let's jump into these Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, verses 2 through 12. This is what Jesus says a good life looks like, a life lived in relationship with God and 
eagerly anticipating God's kingdom of heaven coming back to earth. Now, before we dig into each of these beatitudes, we're going to take a little bit of time, of course, to go through them, each of these sayings, but we got to make sure that we are clear on what is meant by that very first word you saw in every single one of these beatitudes, that word, blessed, right? Blessed. I know it sounds like a straightforward word, but it's, it's actually a little bit more complicated than you might guess, The complication is that Hebrew and Greek, these languages within which scripture was written, these languages both have two different words that are translated into English using only one word, blessed. Now, here's the difference. One of the words, Hebrew has a word for this, Greek has a word for this. They have to do, this is a word that has to do with divine speech, God's words that, that does something. These show up, this word shows up in passages you're familiar with, like God saying to Abraham, I will bless you. I will bless you and make your name great. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. This kind of blessing, the opposite of it is a curse. Now, this kind of blessing also shows up in the New Testament in passages like Ephesians, The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's the sense of blessing that talks about God's divine speech that does something good in your life. A curse, on the other hand, is God's divine speech that does something maybe not so good in your life. But this kind of blessing is God speaking into your life, making something good happen, does something to you. God speaks a blessing. You with me? All right, there's a second word translated into English as blessed. It shows up in passages like the very first psalm. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. And in the New Testament, in passages like Jesus saying to Thomas, have you believed because you've seen me? Well, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That word's a little different. The first one is is used for divine speech that does something good. The second word is used for human speech that describes something good. The first is God's words doing something in your life. The second is your words describing something in your life. There's a difference between these two words for blessing. The second one is the word you use when you're trying to describe the type of circumstances or the the life situation that a person is in that is good and favorable and conducive to their growth as a person, as a human being in relationship with God. Do you see the difference? Did you hear the difference? Even when I was saying it, God has blessed me, blessed are you. We got it just a little bit left in English there to help us hear the difference. But let me try to illustrate it. Do we have any gardeners in the room? Well, this illustration is going to fall flat. Okay, all right. One, one person's with me. I have a garden that I have not yet produced anything edible out of, but after three years of trying, I'm not giving up yet. I'm still reading books about it. 
Imagine, imagine you're a plant, okay? You're this beautiful little tomato plant. I don't know if it helps you draw one in your, in your, your you know, the margin of your Bible or in your notes or whatever. You're, you're a tomato plant. You're a beanstalk. You're whatever you are. Now, imagine the gardener comes along and sees you planted there, you beautiful little budding tomato plant. And the gardener says, there are bugs all over my plants. Now, the gardener then, she blesses you. She blesses you by spraying you down with insecticidal soap and plucking off the larger bugs, throwing them away. Maybe covers you with some tomato netting. Right? This is the, the, the acts of the gardener to bless you. Okay, that's one kind of blessing. The, the other blessing is a little bit different. You know, your friends in this garden, the, the peppers and the jalapenos and that squash that no one talks to you because squash is weird. <laughs> they see you planted in rich soil that's full of nutrients and it's well-drained and there's good sunlight and regular water and they say, blessed is the one who lives in such soil. All right? You see the difference? When they say blessed, they're not referring to directly to God's divine action on your life, though, I mean, who gave you the soil, right? But they're saying, Here's, look at the present realities in this little tomato plant's life. They're describing the state of the world in which you are planted, good soil in which you can grow. Now, of course, when your little, your friends, the, the, the peppers and, the, squ- and the, the squash and the jalapenos, when they said, blessed is the one who lives in such soil, of course, there is a, there's a kind of a proclamation and an invitation that's kept in this, right? You don't just say this in order to say it out loud. You say this because you're saying to the other people around you, would that we could have that soil? How would we get that soil? How do I get planted in dirt like that? How do I get planted in the place where the gardener takes care of me like that? Saying, blessed is the one who lives in such soil is another way of saying, hey, if you really want to flourish, if you want to grow, look for soil like that. Find that garden to grow in. The good life, the good life for a tomato plant is life lived in that kind of soil problem with English is we only have one word that's trying to do double duty there and hold both of these ideas. Okay, what I just said was not actually true. We only have one word now. We used to have two. We used to use blessed to talk about what God was doing from the outside, and we used the word happy to describe the state of flourishing in which you could grow. Of course, that was back before happy meant I feel good inside. I don't know if you know this, I'm a word nerd, so buckle your (laughs) seatbelts. Happy comes from the word hap, which is an old Norse word used to describe random circumstances. Still shows up in English in words like happenstance. It happened to happen, right? Just a lot of hap going on here. And at one point, instead of wishing somebody good luck, you would wish them good hap. May you have good hap in your circumstances, whatever. And so eventually, you didn't wish people good hap, just plain hap, because hap meant good. 
And so you can see how the word changed. I'm happy used to mean I'm experiencing circumstances that are good for me. And then it came to mean I enjoy the circumstances I'm experiencing. And then just I feel good. Like I said, I'm, I'm a word nerd. But this is important. This kind of thing is important to keep in mind if you've ever read older documents that might say things like, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, including life, liberty, and the pursuit of a state of living in which I can flourish. Not just a good feeling. But I deserve to live. A fundamental right given to me by God is to live in a state in which human beings can't flourish. We can grow in our relationship with God as we wait for the kingdom to come. Man, you can see this movement from happy to blessed even happening in real time. If you looked at a passage like Psalm 146, 5, happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help, says the King James. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, says the ESV. Blessed. I mean, it has to do double duty in English. It's a word with a really big backpack because there's a lot going on in there. It's got to communicate both God's divine speech, God has blessed you, and that description of a good life. Blessed are you. Now, what does all that have to do with the Beatitudes? Maybe you can guess. I can give you a clue by mentioning that Latin also has two words. For God's speech in your life that does something. That's the word benedictus in case you're wondering. And it has a word for that good, rich soil in which you will grow. It's the word beatus. Beautiful is the life of the one living in this kind of soil. So let's turn to the beatitudes themselves. Beatitudes. These words are not divine speech acting on our lives. These words are Jesus describing what is good for us in our lives. And when Jesus starts teaching, it's no coincidence that the beginning of his teaching ministry directly echoes the beginning of the Psalms. Blessed is the man who... Jesus starts his ministry saying, blessed is the one who. This is what it looks like to live in good soil, these 11 verses. See, these beatitude sayings are put right at the front of the Sermon on the Mount so that we understand that what Jesus is doing in this sermon, the whole sermon, is describing what a good life lived in relationship with God this is what that good life looks like as you're waiting for the kingdom of God to come back to earth. So he starts his preaching by inviting his followers, right? He's not just saying, hey, blessed is so that we can, you know, chalk it down to something we learned, but so that we would see this, hear this, want this for ourselves. How do I find that kind of soil for me? How do I find that kind of life? in which to live. So he starts his teaching by inviting his followers into a way of living in the world that will result in their true flourishing, their true growth, their true happiness in some small way now, but fully in the kingdom to come. 
So let's look at these. Verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, a couple of, couple of things to notice about the way each of these blessing statements, these beatitudes are structured, right? First, as we've just covered, don't read blessed as God blesses those who are poor in spirit. Okay, if I can get sufficiently poor in spirit, then that will require God to speak some blessing into my life or to reward me for being poor in spirit. That's not how Jesus is intending for us to read this. He wants us to read it like, if you are poor in spirit or mourning, or meek, or persecuted, you're in the right kind of soil. You're in the right kind of circumstances for your flourishing. This is where God wants you to grow. You're in a happy state. That applies to all nine of these statements. So if you find yourself in a state where you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness you're in the right kind of circumstances for your best good. You're exactly where Jesus wants you. That's how the first half of each of these statements work. And that's how these kinds of blessing statements, when you read, blessed is the one who, all throughout Scripture. But secondly, Jesus does something kind of unique. He adds a second half to each blessing statement. A because something. Normally a blessing statement would just say, blessed are the poor in spirit. And that's enough, because you know what blessed means. But he goes on, he adds a little, bit, a little bit more. Every time you see the word for, everything after that is Jesus' sort of unique teaching, describing the result that comes from being planted in this type of soil, from finding yourself in these circumstances. If you are in a place of mourning... You're in the right kind of circumstances for your best growing because you will be fully comforted in the kingdom to come and you can begin experiencing a measure of that comfort now. See, the second half of these statements, they don't describe some sort of blessing that you get from God because you're doing what's in the first half. The second half describes the intrinsic results, the, the baked-in, built-in benefit of living out the first half. You live in that kind of soil, you're going to get this kind of growth. So if you find yourself in a place where you're persecuted because of your desire for righteousness, that's good ground to be planted in because... You're already living out the character of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. That kingdom that God is bringing back to earth in Jesus. But third, as we kind of read through all of these earlier, you may have noticed only one of them was positive. <laughs> Darn it. <laughs> only one of them is positive. There's a dissonance, a sense of disconnect between blessed and then the condition being described. You're in a happy state if you're mourning. You're in a happy state if you're meek. You're in a happy state if you're persecuted. Those, that doesn't go together. What is Jesus doing? Well, let's run through these. See if we can see the kind of life he's calling us to. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. 
Boy, in a world that saw material possessions as evidence of God's active blessing, you know, the from the outside God blessing you, then the poor in spirit, the humble, pious person whose allegiance to God led to their own suffering and disadvantage, nobody looked at that person and thought, man, they've got the kingdom figured out. They looked at that person and said, what did they do that God isn't blessing them anymore? And yet Jesus says, these very ones the rest of the world thinks are outside of the kingdom, weeds outside the garden are actually, in fact, flourishing now because one day the kingdom of heaven will be made up of people like this. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. When Jesus says those who are mourning are the ones most flourishing, he's not talking just about those who are bereaved, those who are in grief or are facing loss. He's picking up themes from Jewish history where those who are mourning is a kind of catchphrase for the ones who are suffering and longing for God's kingdom to come. Even so, come quickly. If that's the cry of your heart, paradoxically, Jesus says, these ones who are mourning as they wait for the kingdom are, in fact, the ones who are flourishing right now because God will comfort you now with the promise of the kingdom and in the future when the fullness of the kingdom comes. Blessed are you if you mourn. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You've probably heard this, meekness was not seen as a virtue by anyone when Jesus was preaching. To be meek is to be humble, to know you have weight and yet not throw it around. To rely on God to provide for what you need, to trust him to deliver. The meek person isn't in your face, shaking things up, trying to get what they want, humbly waiting for God to do what's right. And so paradoxically, again, Jesus says the gentle, meek person who doesn't throw elbows to get what they want is the person who's truly flourishing. Because in the kingdom to come, everything you didn't grab is everything that will be given. In the kingdom to come, the meek person who doesn't use their weight to get what they could is the one who's going to inherit the earth. And there's some comfort in that now, even as we wait for the kingdom. Blessed are the meek. But boy, verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be satisfied. You know, we don't experience much in this day and age. We don't experience much in the way of true hunger and thirst not in, and we don't see it face-to-face -face unless we're ministering like these ladies are under the bridge. We've, pretty, we've done a pretty good job of separating ourselves from this, the strength of this kind of hunger and thirst that's the, the words being used here in this passage, but they are words that speak to the desperation. You will not survive without water, without food, and so your single focus, everything you're doing is focused on finding something, anything to eat, anything to drink. And the person who feels that way about righteousness, 
Not righteousness just in the sense of having a morally upright standing before God, but righteousness in the sense of wanting to, uh, wanting to do justly, to have everything around you done justly, to have God finally put everything to rights, that final justice would be done on this earth. The person who desperately hungers for, thirsts for God to do things rightly and put everything back to rights. But if you're the kind of person who is longing for that justice, Jesus says, you are truly flourishing. Even while you're experiencing the deep pain that awareness of injustice brings. Whether that's injustice in the world around you, in other people, or in yourself. If you're aware of the injustice, the way God could do that, if your heart's cry is, come quickly, Jesus, make it right. How long, O oh Lord? This is the right kind of soil. And you're flourishing because in the kingdom to come, you will be satisfied. The longing for everything to be right will finally come true. In some small way now, and in fullness in the kingdom to come, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness they shall be satisfied. But verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. In my experience, no one ever really wants to have to be merciful. You'd rather stay out of those kind of circumstances, right? Those situations. But Jesus says, if you find yourself in the place where mercy is required of you, because you have been wronged, you have been hurt, Somebody you care about has been hurt. If you're in the place where you have to be merciful, where the call of Jesus on your life is to show mercy, is to get to show mercy, boy, you are in the right kind of soil. You are in the state that is most conducive to true flourishing because those who show mercy will be shown mercy fully in the kingdom to come. And yet in some small measure now, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Purity, not purity the way we usually talk about it today is moral purity or sexual purity. This is about the person who is singularly focused. Their heart is fully focused on love for God. Purity in heart. This is the person with undivided loyalty. The rare few of us whose outward activities actually match their inward desires and aren't just putting on the front of what we know we're supposed to do. But we've grown into the way where like, what we want is actually what God wants for us. Blessed are the pure in hearts. These are the ones, Jesus says, who are truly f- flourishing because they will see, which means know. They will know God more and more and more now, but fully in the kingdom to come. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons and daughters of God. Peacemakers, it's a funny word because it's hard enough already to find people who are supposed to keep the peace. Peacekeepers, soldiers, civil authorities. Rarer and harder still is it to find someone who actually makes peace, who doesn't just keep it by avoiding conflict, but who makes it by stepping into conflict and giving of themselves, pouring out of themselves to bring peace between themselves and someone else or between others. God, we know, is the ultimate peacemaker, giving of himself to make peace between himself and us. And Jesus says, those who are actively working and sacrificing to bring peace where there is only dissension and conflict and rivalry are the ones who are truly flourishing. The ones who are truly growing as citizens of the kingdom because they're the ones who, when the kingdom comes, will be called children of God called the children of God because they look like their dad. They look like their father. That's how you know they're children of God. They look and they act like their parents. They look and act like God. The ones who make peace, give of themselves willingly to bring about peace between themselves and others. Not just the absence of conflict, but peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Well, verse 10 and 11, here's a double whammy on this one. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you. It's the only time in here where Jesus says, blessed, not just blessed are those, but blessed are you. As he brings this, in this description of what good soil looks like to a close, don't let us miss this. Blessed are you all. When others revile you and persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you, falsely on my account, Jesus says. There's a command, rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You're just one in a long line of those that God has used. So blessed are those who are persecuted, persecuted for righteousness' sake, persecuted because they want to do rightly. They want to see others do rightly. They want everything done rightly. And they want the world put back to rights. Blessed are you when you're persecuted for living in relationship with Jesus, anticipating the kingdom to come in which everything will be made right and longing for it to happen now. I mean, is there anything worse than being slandered and attacked and excluded for doing the right things? Or insisting that others do the right thing? Or because you're waiting for God to do the right thing? And yet, again, paradoxically, Jesus says that those who are suffering this way are truly flourishing because you are inheritors of the kingdom and will receive a great reward for longing for God's righteousness. 
Did you notice every single one of these Beatitudes has an unexpected twist to it? Over and over, it seems like Jesus is uttering paradoxes. He keeps describing scenes that feel utterly like non-flourishing. That's bad soil. I don't want that. Mourning, persecution, poverty of spirit, desperation for things to be made right, a longing for all of our conflicting internal desires to be integrated into a harmonious whole directed towards God. Each of these scenes of decided non-flourishing, Jesus says, this is the best soil for your heart to be planted in. Man, this is where you grow. He's telling us flourishing, true human flourishing as someone in relationship with Jesus waiting for God to bring the kingdom of heaven back to earth. True flourishing is not about arranging the best possible circumstances we can for ourselves. Jesus says flourishing as a citizen in his kingdom is defined as suffering while waiting. Suffering while waiting. Not suffering in despair, but suffering while waiting for God to bring that kingdom back to earth. That's flourishing. That's flourishing. And just like, just like that jalapeno plant saying, blessed is the one who grows in that kind of soil. Jesus is saying, blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those, so that we will see this beautiful picture of a flourishing life and run after it. That's what I want for my life. So what do we do with beatitudes like this? With blessing statements like this that feel so much like non-blessing? How do we live this out in our own lives? There's a couple of thoughts that come to mind because whenever someone says, like Jesus is saying here, ah, here's what true happiness looks like, there's a built-in invitation, right? There's a built-in invitation to find that life, to live towards that picture. So first, I think we have to acknowledge to ourselves that Jesus might have a better idea of what good soil looks like than we do. He knows what a truly good life looks like, what the real happy state is. And if we can't acknowledge this, it's impossible to understand anything else he says in the Sermon on the Mount. If we don't understand this, how are we ever going to take him seriously when he starts talking about stuff that's really difficult, like anxiety and sexuality and anger and retaliation? rest of his words don't make any sense unless we see that this life is the beautiful life. This is the good soil. It's a pretty good chance that what we think we need for ourselves is not what Jesus thinks we need for ourselves. So how many of us right now are desperately hoping for a change in our circumstances? Might be in a dead-end job, a relationship that's going nowhere, a community that's anemic or full of conflict, or you just feel disconnected from life, from church, from people, from yourself. Is it possible Jesus has you right where he wants you? Is it possible, forgive my language, that all the crap you're going through is Jesus' fertilizer? Yeah. 
for your growth? Is it possible? I mean, we got to learn to embrace Jesus' definition of good soil, not our own ideas about what makes for good ground to grow in. And if, as we do, well, there's a second sort of application here. We're going to have to learn to embrace unanticipated flourishing. Unanticipated <laughs> flourishing. None of us tend to go looking for situations where we can mourn or where meekness will be required of us or where we will be required to pour ourselves out to make peace or where we will be persecuted or suffer. And yet when we find ourselves in those situations, Jesus has us there for a reason. There are opportunities for growth there. It's good soil, even if it doesn't feel like it. In the last couple of years, pastors, people serving in this kind of role have learned a lot about crisis management. <laughs> Thanks, Curtis. <laughs> and we've grown in our leadership abilities, most of us. It's been a season of unanticipated flourishing. They didn't cover this in seminary. Seasons of growth where you didn't think growth was possible. Sometimes I feel like telling God, why are you teaching me things I don't want to learn? <laughs> and I am not asking to go through that kind of leadership crucible again. But I don't want to let go of the growth or insights or experience I've gained. An author I love says that the way a leader grows is by, it's kind of like blacksmithing. You're a piece of unformed steel that gets heated hotter than you ever want to be, and then you are slammed between the anvil and the hammer. <laughs> and that's how you become what God wants you to be. I'd rather be the blacksmith. <laughs> and I'm the dumb piece of metal in the middle. All right, Lord, keep beating until I'm the right shape. So we got to learn to embrace unanticipated flourishing instead of merely trying to get out of our difficult circumstances. God, take me off the anvil. It's hot in here. He says, no, you're not the right shape yet. Third, when we find ourselves in the kind of soil that Jesus describes here. Instead of asking, God, what are you teaching me? Because you know what that means. That means make it clear so I can get out of this. Right? God, we don't ask God, what are you teaching me? We ask God, how are you growing me? This is where you want me planted. This is where I'm going to grow. This is where I'm going to learn to live into the kingdom that's coming instead of trying to build a kingdom right now. So how do you want me to grow? Most of the time, I don't think God's teaching us something. I think he's growing us into something. He's not trying to get us to fill a notebook with lessons, but to fill a life with flourishing, to grow and produce fruit. And what he's growing us into, well, we can't be it without the suffering we're experiencing. I know that because he's growing us into the character of his son who embraced suffering on our behalf. Another author I love calls the Beatitudes a rich reservoir of black gold. He says it's divine gold of priceless worth, even if to us it appears to be only darkness. 
But when we stare into the darkness that is these beatitudes, the suffering and the mourning and the humility and the desperation, it strikes us, I know, as antithetical to the good life, antithetical to the kind of life we want for ourselves. How many of you use this as a prayer guide for your children? Father, may they be humbled. May they mourn. May they be persecuted. May they be hungry, because that is how you will grow them. Doesn't come naturally, does it? Lord, save them from the Beatitudes, right? I know, I got a 12-year-old. I don't want this for her, and yet this is what God wants for me. He loves her more than I love her. He knows what she needs more than I know what she needs. He knows how she needs to flourish unanticipatedly, if that's a word, more than I do. This is the best soil for Jesus' followers to grow in. Why aren't, we, why aren't we running after it ourselves? Or at least maybe not running after it. Maybe that's a little too whatever the word is for uh, martyrdom. That's the word I'm looking for. Maybe it's a little too much of a martyr complex to say, Lord, bring more suffering. <laughs> bring more persecution, Lord. I need to grow. How about instead we say, Lord, you do what you know I need. And help me to grow in it. Lord, you do what you know my children need. Help them to grow in it. Lord, you do what you know my church needs. And we'll grow in it. This is black gold. Darkness of divine worth. But this is gold because this is exactly how Jesus lived his life. And he's not giving us any teaching he hasn't first himself learned. You want humility? Jesus says, I'm gentle and lowly in heart. In me you will find rest for your souls. You want mourning and grieving, hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Jesus weeps over Jerusalem, longing to bring the people of God into the kingdom of God. You want mercy? Jesus confronted person after person after person that required of him mercy and compassion, food for the crowds, healing for the sick, rebuke for the prideful. You want peace. The resurrected Jesus says to his followers, do not be afraid, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. God is not growing in us anything that his own son has not already learned. And God is not planting us in any ground he has not already walked. Because these Beatitudes, they show us what a beautiful life, a paradoxically, almost antithetically beautiful life looks like when it's lived in relationship with God, suffering for his sake, comforted by our hope in his promise that he will return in his kingdom and set everything right. You've been listening to the Solid Word Bible Church podcast, and we trust that you've been blessed. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can visit our website at solidword.org. Thank you for joining us today, and we'll see you next week.